The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is the newscast for episode 122 for the week of, what, what is it this week? 24th, I think? Yeah, June 24th. June 24th, 2019. Uh, Alex, uh, well, let's go ahead and jump into our housekeeping type stuff, and then we can talk about some news. Go ahead. So uh, we have a Slack channel. In case you hadn't noticed, uh, we like to get together and have folks talk. So that Slack channel is out there. You can go to the website, colorado-security.com. Find a link to that. Come and chat with nearly 1,000 people that are in there talking about security in Colorado. And while you're at colorado-security.com, you can join our mailing list. You can get the show notes delivered directly into your inbox each week with the uh, description and links to all of the stories we talk about here on the podcast. And if you want to do something else uh, automatically, you can subscribe to get our podcast in your favorite podcast player. And then if you like what we're doing, you can rate us in whatever service that is. Uh, let everyone else know that this is a great podcast. And if you want to do even more, we would love it. One favor you could do for us is if you would tell a friend, tell one of your coworkers or colleagues, uh, anyone who you run into on the street about Colorado Equal Security. The more listeners we get, the more fun we're having on this podcast. And if you really, really like what we're doing and want to support us financially, we do have a Patreon campaign that is ongoing. You can sign up for that. Uh, depending on the level you sign up for, you'll get some uh, cool swag and, and probably a shout out in the show. All right. Well, we had we got some really sad news yesterday. We did uh, a little bit uh, downcast here at the beginning of the show. Uh, one of our, our good friends, uh, uh, Rob Winter, the CISO for Boulder Community Health, he, he passed away uh, after a I mean a long. What's been four it's, years, it's five been years, a, a number of years, yeah, battling been, against cancer. Yeah, yeah. It, it really sad to hear that. Rob was a, a wonderful person. Uh, did a lot for the community. Um, he was not only CISO for Boulder Community Health, but he also taught cybersecurity and uh, just an all-around good person. Yeah, I I, th- I think the last time I saw him was actually recording the podcast that we that we ha- where we had him on the show. Yeah. Um, you know, he he used to make it to to CISO dinners in town in the last man six nine months or so. He hasn't been able to make it. I, I know he's you know he had a. a a rough run there, obviously, uh, ending with his passing away on Saturday. Uh, we'll definitely miss him. I, I've already reached out to ask, you know, are there things the community can do to help? We don't have any answers for that yet, but for those of you who uh, who are interested, uh, definitely join the Slack channel or actually just send me a note if you want to, and, and as I find out, I will pass those things along. Yeah, but uh, definitely keep his uh, family in your thoughts. A tough time for them and um, definitely a tough time for the Colorado security community. Yeah, so excuse us if this show is a little bit more somber than normal. We obviously are uh, are, are grieving the loss of our friend. Yeah. All right. Uh, next, we have a salary survey. And this, I think, this is going to be the last uh, week where we talk about it. We're planning to close the salary survey here at the end of June. And this is a chance for all of the members of the Colorado security community to get together, share uh, data points. If you share data points, you get the results of the survey and you can you know, hopefully use that to help yourself decide maybe what focus within security you want to go after. You want to be an AppSec person. You want to be a network security person. Um, and, and of course, to help you with your own salary negotiations in the future. Exactly. All right. Well, let's jump into the news. Uh, first, you guys may have heard about this, but there was a, a dinosaur skeleton that was found in Highlands Ranch during a uh, construction effort. 
and it has now been identified what that is. Uh, E.T. Is that is that correct? <laughs> no, E.T. It was not E.T. Uh, I, I I do remember that at initially when they found it, they were thinking it might be a new dinosaur. Um, yeah, they were wrong. They were it's wrong. Not. It's a Triceratops. Yeah, I did not know that Triceratops was the most common type of dinosaur found in Colorado. I did not know that either. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I did just listen to a podcast yesterday, totally unrelated, about the fact that uh, in the last few years of searching for dinosaur skeletons has become big business, and that private basically Indiana Joneses will be, will go to ranchers, especially in like the badlands to look for T-Rexes. Uh, T-Rex is worth multiple millions of dollars when they find one of those. But do they have hats and whips, Rob? I, I don't know how you could do this job without those things. Uh, next, there is a, a new car insurance firm that is launching their app in Colorado. Noble. And of course it is a tech company. So they had to leave off a letter. It's a noble with no E at the end. Um, they are an app-based technology that tracks their customers driving and they reward good behavior behind the wheel with discounted insurance rates. I assume this means they punish bad behavior. Yeah, well, I guess that's possible. It did not say that in the article. It did, it did talk about discounts. So I assume that there is some you know, base level, which is probably higher than you would get with um, other car right. insurance. And then depending on what your driving habits are, you can lower that. It's set up to 51%. Well, so you might be wondering, well, how do they know if I'm driving well based on an app? Well, and I'm here to tell you what the answer to that is. Number one, they look for smoothness or how hard a driver turns and brakes. Focus, whether the driver is texting behind the wheel. Road choice, are you going on safe roads or unsafe roads? And finally, the time of day when you drive. Yeah, um, I think all, all things that make sense to look at as to who would be better to insure and who better not. And I think it also means maybe I won't use them for insurance. <laughs> uh, next, we have a story. Uh, you know, obviously there's been a, a significant change in the focus or in the, in the perception around electric cars over the last, what, decade or so. Yeah. Uh, and now all of a sudden there is a shift to try and, and create and uh, go to production with electric airplanes. And, and specifically, there's a Colorado company called Buy Aerospace that's working to bring an electric plane to market here in Colorado. I thought this was a really interesting article, not just because of the fact that they are talking about electric planes, but I guess I hadn't really thought about the, the small scale commercial um, aerospace industry. And you know, basically, this is going to re be potentially replacing some of the smaller Cessna planes that are out there that right. people use for... I'll, I'll call it personal travel, but, you know, smaller, you know, two, right. four seater kind of planes, a lot of them that are used for, for training purposes, for people learning how to fly. And one of the things that they're talking about here is that they're uh, the uh, workforce for pilots. There's a, a number that are going to be going out of the industry and they're having potentially a hard time getting people into being pilots because of the cost. Right. Well, so the baby boomer generation is all retiring. Right. And, and there's a, a very large number of pilots and baby boomers and like most other industries, but. Uh, pilots is a big one. And then the training has become much more rigorous with, you know, significant safety concerns. So it's harder to, to get uh, new pilots. Um, all that said, this new technology is going to significantly reduce the barrier of entry to, to being a pilot. So generally with a Cessna, they say the average cost per flight hour is about $110. And with this new this new electric plane, it's going to be $23 per flight hour. That Just, is a pretty big savings. Yeah. I mean, that's like, 75% savings or but, some craziness. Wow. Like that. 80 ish. Some, some good math there, Rob. Yeah. And, the, and not only is it the you know ongoing cost, but the purchase price is lower too. So the uh, a Cessna 
maybe a relevant Cessna here costs around $438,000. And they, they say that their two seat E flyer is going to cost about 349,000. Yeah. Save up front, save for ongoing. Pretty cool. Uh, you know, when you think about it too, they mentioned that it used to be, it took about 250 hours to be certified as a pilot. And now, um, as you mentioned, because of safety concerns and other things, you have to fly for 1500 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, way more. So that is a, a much more expensive endeavor. So yeah. cheaper anything is a good thing. So are you ready to spend that $350,000 on an airplane, Alex? Uh, I, you know, maybe if we get a little bit more into the Patreon campaign, yeah. we can get that Colorado Equal Security smokes. plane. Colorado Equal Security e-flyer. Yeah. Anyone who's listening who's like, that's a great idea. You come with a thousand dollars. I'll come with a thousand dollars, and we'll just get another, you know, three hundred and fifty people, and we'll be there. <laughs> yeah, we'll be right there. Uh, next, the uh, Colorado Economic Development Commission announced that they are uh, giving incentives to two tech companies looking to bring about fifteen hundred jobs to Denver. So th these articles are—I'm never even sure if we want to talk about them because these articles specifically do not give the names of the companies. They talk about the fact that this committee has agreed to give incentives to unnamed companies. Right. They give some some hints in the article that maybe you could piece together who it is. One of these companies is a local tech-enabled services company that's going to grow by about 1,400 employees over the next, what was it, eight or nine years, right. something like that. The other is from out of state uh, and would be bringing in somewhere in the same ballpark of, of jobs. Um, anyway, what's really cool is just to see this continued uh, interest and pressure to, to bring in new companies and bring in new jobs to Colorado. And really, uh, you know, while, while we already know that the job market here is really tight and there's not enough uh, talent, um, it looks like it's really going to continue going forward. Yeah. I, one down note, I don't know if you noticed it or not, Rob, but the last paragraph of this article said that previously the commission had approved $10 million in incentives for one called Project Beam. Um, and that was for about an 800 worker uh, tech center relocation. Uh, but that company decided to go to Arizona instead of here. Yeah, so. we didn't want that company anyway. Uh, I didn't think so, yeah. but, you know, thought I'd mention it. These anyway. new ones who we don't know who they are, we definitely want. But that other one, we didn't know who it was. Yeah. Screw yeah. those guys. Yeah. All right. Uh, next, we have a story about Dish. Dish Networks is going to start offering in-home tech support for people regardless of who your television provider is. You don't have to be a Dish provider to, to use them. Um, it, really interesting stuff. Yeah, this is focused on sort of the new wave of in-home electronics, you know, smart home devices, cameras, um, voice-enabled, whatevers, um, all the different things that we are now putting in our homes that are internet-connected. And so Dish has learned over the years with, you know, installing TVs and sound bars and obviously cable, uh, satellite TV, um, that uh, th they have some expertise in this area. So they're starting a, a different um, company to be able to do this home electronic stuff. Uh, so installations for these standard things like your your smart dart, uh, smart doorbell or your smart thermostat are going to cost ninety nine ninety nine. Uh, they they also sell the devices themselves. They sell things like Google Nest, Ring, Linksys, Roku, um, and they are launching in a number of cities, including Denver. On well, they've already launched on June seventeenth. Uh, they're also in Atlanta, Dallas. Houston, Kansas City, Los Angeles, New York, Sacramento, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, and St. Louis. Wow. Sounds good. Um, sign me up. All right. Next time you need to have some tech support done, there you go. Uh, next, a, a quick note. Uh, we had talked to Red Rocks Community College a couple weeks back about their team that was going to Singapore 
to uh, compete in a competition there. And it looks like they have finished in the bronze status. So remember, they were they were representing the United States, right? Yeah, they were the only team from the U.S. So we are number three. Congratulations, congratulations to, us. to us. Congratulations yeah. to the Red Rocks Community College team. Um, very cool stuff. I, I'm so happy to hear that the f- local boy makes good. Local team makes good. It's probably a better way to put that. Um, and hopefully, we, you know, next year we can get back out there again. Yeah, and uh, once they are back from that trip, we may be able to get some more information as well. All right. Next, we have a press release from Ping Identity. They partnered with Iovation um, to provide user and device risk as a part of the ongoing Ping Identity focus on zero trust. Uh, that is very exciting. Uh, what does that exactly mean, Rob? Well, what, what Iovation does is it sets up a profile for risk for the devices that are connecting. Um, so, so as a part of Ping authenticating and providing access into systems, they can take they can look at what's the device risk and say, yes, I trust this device because it's got a low risk, or no, we're not going to trust it, or we're going to make them do it. You know, we're going to make only give them access to low sensitive information based on a high risk score. Ah, good stuff. Uh, next, Secure sixty four has announced that they are uh, launching a research division uh, called Secure sixty four Labs. Uh, so that this effort is being uh, driven out of their uh, Fort Collins headquarters. And they're going to be looking at things such as um, the implications of 5G, privacy issues, artificial intelligence, and how that all relates to security around DNS. Really cool. I'm looking forward to the many research papers we should expect to see coming out of there that we won't understand. Right. These guys get really technical there at Secure64. Uh, next, we have another Zero Trust article. This time, it's written by Logarithm. Um, and our friend James Carter, the CISO over at Logarithm, wrote a story uh, really talking about how Logarithm sees Zero Trust and, and kind of what their model is. I, I thought this was an interesting compliment to the one, was it last week or two? I think it was last week uh, that Ping Identity had written, yeah. kind of talking about the framework for Zero Trust. Yeah, and this is also talking a little bit about what Logarithm has done um, internally to implement Zero Trust for their own enterprise. Uh, next, there's a blog from Managed Methods talking about uh, secure, or excuse me, Office 365 and secure email issues and settings. Uh, Managed Methods is a cloud access security broker, and one of the areas that they focus on is Office 365. And just they give some tips about things that you should do to secure your Office 365 environment and how they can help. Yeah, they go through four different risky areas for there, and then they give some specific examples of how you can manage those risks. Uh, we also have a, a blog post from Coalfire this week. Um, they are introducing a new technology called Slackor. Or are, Slacker? Slackor? Are you a Slackor? Um, I don't know. What is a Slackor, Alex? Oh, that's a great question, Rob. So uh, Slackor is a command and control persistence application um, that they developed you know, for pen testing. Basically, you know, it can be installed as an implant and then provide command and control access through Slack as the, that communication channel. Awesome. Um, so this blog post, and I assume this technology, was created by Esteban Rodriguez. And we've had actually had two or three other blog posts of his on the yeah. show. I think he might be winning the... Uh, the references on Colorado Equal Security tally, tally from Coalfire. That is very true. He does put out a lot of good, really technical blogs. Well done, Esteban. Uh, and finally, another reminder, uh, the Apex Awards, which is the Colorado Technology Association's annual awards ceremony, is currently accepting nominations for all of their different awards, CIO of the Year, Company of the Year, Project of the Year, and most specifically here, Chief Information Security Officer of the Year. Yeah, I think it, this is a great thing. 
Uh, we've had some good winners in the past. We want to get a lot of nominations this year uh, so that we can have a, a good pool of candidates. So go out and nominate people. And if you're not interested in nominating people, go talk to your HR or public relations people and, and ask them to nominate uh, your CISO or, or someone else. All right. That is it for the news. Moving over to our Slack message of the week. Big thanks to Andre Gaeta. Andre has been loyally sponsoring this segment of the show for a long time. Um, we, we appreciate it, Andre. And of course, if anyone's interested in talking email security, give Andre a holler. Uh, this week, we want to uh, want to give a, the Slack message of the week to Matt Parks. Matt is a, is a friend of ours, works over at Kaiser Permanente. And he specifically was sharing the results that, his, that the Kaiser Permanente boss of the sock team uh, finished was it fifth na first in Colorado and fifth nationally. So what is yeah. boss of the sock? Yeah. So this was sort of, um, I mean, I guess I'll call it a capture the flag competition. It's a, um, it's a competition that, uh, that, that, uh, they put out to go out there and, and look for different pieces of data, use, uh, use the Splunk tools and other things like that as part of a competition. It's specific to Splunk, right? Yeah, specific it's a, to Splunk. Yeah. Using, using Splunk, to, to be able to, you know, look for threats within your, your defensive yeah. environment. Yep. And so if you are a, a sock person, then this is right up your alley. And there were a number of teams that were here in Colorado that competed. Uh, we had some talk about that on the Slack channel this week, and it sounds like uh, the Kaiser team was the best. Awesome. Congratulations to those guys, and congratulations to Matt Parks, who will get to pick one item from the Colorado Equal Security swag store. Hopefully he picks, you know, a coffee mug or something like that that they can, you know, pass around to all the different people in the SOC team down there that, that helped with this. All right. Let's go ahead and jump over to our events for the week. Uh, we actually have an event for a new group, Alex. This, uh, this is a group called the Emerging Technology Thought Leaders. Um, and they're really, they present a, on a variety of topics that are really impacting the, the way technology is going to be changing and our jobs and technology in the future. But are all of those topics emerging? Um, well, more or less. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes or no is the other way to say that. Uh, so the, there is an event from them on the 25th called RPA took my job. What is RPA? I think it's, it's ro robotic process automation, Rob. Well done. Yeah. Robotic process automation might be taking your job. So what do you do about it? Uh, that's a good question. I guess you'll have to show up to that event. Uh, also on the 25th, the GDPR meetup group is doing a case study of how to use data privacy as a competitive advantage. On the 26th, ISC Squared Pikes Peak is doing their June chapter meeting. Also on the 26th, SecureSet is doing a women's only beginner's intro to capture the flag. On the 28th, ISC Squared is doing their Secure Summit Denver. This is the big ISC Squared event in Denver for the year. On the 1st of July, SecureSet is doing a Capture the Flag Cybersecurity Hackathon. And that gets us through the next two weeks. Uh, I don't know, you know, next week we'll be together the right before 4th of July. The yep. week after that, we haven't figured out our schedule quite yet. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. All right, jumping over to jobs. Uh, we have a couple of jobs at Ping. I actually have, I think I mentioned last week, three open positions right now in product security. Uh, if you are an application developer and you're looking to get your foot in the door in security, this would be a great opportunity for you. We're looking for junior product security engineers. We're looking for full product security engineers. And I'm also looking for a manager of product security. So if you like product security, they should come talk to you. I'm, the, I'm your guy. All right. KPMG is looking for a manager of IT security compliance. This actually looked like it might be an internal position at, at KPMG it, as, it did, yeah. as opposed to consulting. 
Uh, there's a couple of jobs at Kaiser Permanente. They're hiring an IT consultant, principal risk portfolio management, and they're hiring a senior associate of cyber risk defense. Very different type jobs. Yeah, that second one, my guess is um, works with that SOC team that was you right. know, one of the bosses of the SOC. Might, so might, might work for Matt Parks. That's possible. So it sounds like a good job there. Uh, Zero is looking for a security operations analyst. Google is hiring a technical risk solutions consultant. That's here in Colorado. Yeah, and that actually looked also like an internal job, like internal technology risk consulting. Uh, Johns Manville is looking for a senior data security administrator. Cognizant is hiring a network and security administrator. And Virtual Armor is looking for a regional sales director. So if you want to sell security products, uh, check that one out. All right. Well, that takes us to the end of the newscast. This week we have, uh, I'm going to try and say her name. I'm sorry, Chris, if I do not say it right. Is it Chris Bradzinuris? I think it's Bradzinuris. Okay. Uh, Close enough. I think we probably both said that wrong. Well, we, we, this is the last in our series of interview by Mary Ritz yes. uh, sitting down with women in security here in Colorado. So I'm excited to hear her conversation with Chris. Yeah. Chris was, she was the product officer or something, VP of product at Logarithm for years. And now she's and, at ThreadX. Yeah, now she's the chief product officer for ThreadX. Yeah. And then uh, one last thing. Thanks again to Mary for doing this series of interviews. Um, it's been really interesting and hopefully we hear more of those in the future. Yeah, if there's anyone else out there who wants to get, you know, throw their hat in the ring and help us do interviews around the area, we would love it. Reach out to us at info at colorado-security.com and we'll chat with you about it there. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you guys again next week. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Merlin Namath, Director of Security at Red Robin. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. For Colorado security professionals, by Colorado security people. Hey, this is Mary Ritz with Colorado Equals Security. I'm here with Chris Braz-Junis. Chris is the Chief Product Officer for ThreatX, a local startup here in Colorado. She had a really interesting career building security products. And Chris, I'd love to hear just your background. How did you get started building products and specifically in the cybersecurity space? Sounds good, Mary. So, you know, it's kind of a long-winded story. My career really started in product development. I was Mm -hmm. a software engineer. Software engineer in telecom back in the 90s and building large enterprise carrier-based solutions. At one point, got into interesting products like wireless data over amps or cellular for a point application of policemen being able to type in license plate numbers to see if that license plate is valid. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, very small data type of applications. Okay. And, you know, over the years in product development... Um, I also developed the, the desire to understand products and understand, you know, why is roadmap is, why is roadmap set up the way it is, mm-hmm. you know, what's driving it? Because I want to build products that actually matter. And that's why I got into the product, product management space. And so over the years, I moved in from telecom to wireless to VoIP and, um, and then to enterprise, um, unified communication solutions for, um, for hedge trading. Mm-hmm. and financial services. And over my years in the two early 2000s, I started running into security. And frankly, I thought, this is a pain in the butt. <laughs> you know, it's in the way. It's in the way of innovation, yeah. right? And I almost got frustrated with it when someone would ask, can you encrypt this data stream? I said, why would we do that? Put a perimeter around it and call it good, yeah. right? And protect the network infrastructure. And and I, and I felt that pretty strongly. So, you know, the start of my career... 
was more about building great products and building scalable products. And it was really not a lot about security. Mm -hmm. I came into a product development opportunity where all of a sudden I'm building um, <clears throat> trading, trader voice community infrastructure for financial services and big financial institutions, Deutsche Bank, okay. and Goldman Sachs. And as we're building these solutions, I find out there's, a, there's kind of this process before you actually can put that product into, into that um, <clears throat> investment firm, you had to go through a complete security assessment. Right. Makes sense. Hedge right. Fund. <laughs> <laughs> it's hedge funds, right? And I was like, wow, I guess I, I can't ignore this stuff anymore. But yeah. yet it was still getting getting pretty hard. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so that's where I started to gain a lot more respect and started to really thinking about application security. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, probably around 2011, um, being in product development and also just loving to build new solutions, I kind of recognized it was time to make a switch in my domain. And ironically, I fall into cybersecurity and I joined a company called Logarithm, mm. which was a, you know, as we know, a, a Colorado company that, yeah, we, we, that, we, love, that we all love dearly. Yeah. And um, is a big player in the SIM market. Right. And it was there that I had the opportunity of working with some pretty talented folks in the security space. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the founders over there, as well as the Logarithm Labs people. And as I was, you know, developing product for uh, product for them from an engineering perspective and growing their engineering um, team, I also got the chance to work in the product management area. Yeah, and that's how I just got more and more into understanding the cybersecurity domain, which then finally led me towards where I'm at right now, which is a company called ThreadX, which is a, a startup, an emerging startup in the um, application security space today. Nice, nice, and so. Actually, so I ran ArcSight product maybe at the same time that you were running Logarithm, and I was always impressed with what you guys were doing. But. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> um, okay, so I, you know, we I was trying to bring some product um, product management influence into the podcast and thinking into the podcast. And I, what do you think is a big challenge about building products in the security space that's unique to security because you've been in multiple disciplines? Yeah, it's a good question. I think from a security, um, things have changed from what's important. If you look today and what's unique about security is that, you know, we have a very small group of enterprise security staff who have a really large job. Yeah. Right. And so when you think about products, and as I've talked to a lot of customers over the years, I kind of learned to understand that really the, one of the most important things to do is get a product that works, that works reasonably well, and it has minimal friction, right? It's easy to deploy. You don't need a 100-page book or document to figure out how to use it. Right. And you can gain value out of it relatively easily. Mm -hmm. And those things are actually probably more important than building that, that next additional feature. In fact, a lot of large enterprises I talk to at Logarithm would say that. Mm. And so that's one of the big challenges today is making that product that just works and, you know, you can you can gain value from it from an enterprise perspective pretty quickly. Yeah. Do you feel like sometimes I feel like so I get pressure for that, too. And sometimes I feel like that limits me from being innovative because I'm working on simplicity, UI, intuitive product, and I can't work on that next cool, big, flashy feature. 
Yeah, I think that there's some truth to that, though I think you can make um, operation operational ease to be slick. Yeah. Right? You can make a deployment experience to be pretty slick. And so while I would tend to agree from, you know, some of those topics are more boring, I think they can be very interesting. I think what it does stop, and I, you know, I'll use one of the buzzwords we use today is machine learning, mm-hmm. right? If you, if I talk to you, being in a startup right now, investors are like, so tell me what, you know, machine learning algorithms are you using here? And I'm like, why don't you ask me about how our product works and how it really detects adversarial attacks? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's where, you know, you, you have to help help our investors and help the business understand and put them back in line saying, this is what the customers are asking for. Here's what we're hearing from our customers. Here's what we're hearing from some of the partners in the security community are some of the pain points. I think, you know, so really from that perspective, I think it's important to listen to your constituents and then, you know, really take a look at where you think you're going to grow your business the most and focus in there. Right. Well, what, uh, so you're working in web application firewall space, which is new. What cool things are happening in that space right now? Yeah, so this is a pretty cool space in and of itself. Um, the WAP space historically has been much like the SEM space. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been the one that's been most liked. Mm-hmm. And if anything, it's been probably an area of frustration for enterprise security teams. Why is that? Well, operationally, pretty complex. You know, a lot of operational activity that is required to tune the solution, tune the solution when the app changes, tune solution when the attack spec landscape changes, mm-hmm. and overall just never really being able to get it right. Yeah, and and um, and so and that this is a space that probably hasn't had as much innovation as other areas of security like EDR, identity, um, etc. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, what's going on in this space now is I think there's becoming increasingly more recognition that app security is important. Yeah. Right. I think if you look at, you know, Forrester just uh, released some data uh, that I actually saw through a webinar um, that indicated the top two reasons enterprises get compromised. One is due to software vulnerabilities. And the second is due to poorly engineered web web applications. And so as a result... This is why I think there's becoming there's there's an opportunity here now to solve a problem that hasn't been solved well. And that's what's going on in web application security today and particularly at ThreatX. Yeah. And so you guys are you're a SaaS and you're inline, so you get to see all of the malicious activity going to all these sites. Have you seen anything cool? Yeah, you know, this is the thing that has been um Pretty cool. And my, my first three months here at ThreadX, as you and I talked kind of before we started this webcast, you know, we both being in the SEM market <laughs> and really being in operations, yeah. right? And, and, and the SEM markets and, and security operations is cool. Yeah. But seeing the, seeing the um, attacks is something else. Yeah. So, you know, ThreadX um, has, you know, a good number of customers. Um, same token, we're not an Akamai. Right. But, you know, we can, we can, during the week, see attacks and we'll see, um, you know, credential stuffing attacks. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why in the world are, are attackers doing this? Well, you start to think about this and you say, well, maybe they're trying to figure out which user IDs are valid. And then I guess they're going to sell them on the dark web for a bit more. I have no idea. Yeah. But we're seeing these kind of things. Another thing I saw recently, um, and this was just over a week ago, 
there's um, an e-commerce infrastructure called Magento. Mm-hmm. Now, something that I, I don't have a lot of familiar, familiar, familiarity with from, yeah. based on my background. But, you know, there was a vulnerability um, that was recently released that says that an un- unauthenticated user um, could could still perform a SQL injection. Mm-hmm. I mean, SQL injection, we're 10 years into this, 15 years into this, <laughs> and we're still looking after these things. <laughs> so this vulnerability comes out, and same day and across the next days, our customers who have Magento sites, which we know because we can fingerprint them, mm-hmm. they're getting attacked. Of course, mm-hmm. our solution's protecting them, but we're like, wow. It's fast. It's fast. So vulnerability comes out there, you know, maybe a proof of concept data, um, is also out there, and all of a sudden, people are trying it. Yeah. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. So so that makes, it makes what I do and what we do as ThreadX real. It's like, wow, there's a lot of need for application protection, and we can really help a lot of businesses, you know, keep their keep their e-commerce sites or other sites more available. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think about... Uh... So as products move into managed services space or SaaS space, there is some advantage to one person getting to see all the traffic and start to put together trends of what's happening across multiple customers uh, versus everybody looking at their own stuff and wondering what's unusual. Yeah, exactly. I mean, cross-customer analytics is a capability of our products, a differentiated capability of our product. And even with our size customer base, we see it. Yeah, and um, and that is that is certainly true. And then also from a services perspective, since we do see it, we're able to at least apply you know some of that consultative consultative type of um, service to our clients as well, which is I think helpful when you have an enterprise security organization that oftentimes is made up of IT personnel, network security focused folks who probably didn't come from the app dev space, right? How has it been moving from, so Logarithm, pretty large product. Of course, it went, it, it was a startup and then it went into private equity and now you're back in a startup again. What, I, I guess, what's the difference? Um, what's the difference between those two environments and building products? Yeah, you know, I think, um, first of all, when you're in a larger company, you know, first at Logarithm, I guess I went through a couple of transitions at Logarithm. First, we were probably 130 people when I joined. Oh, wow. And at that time in 2011, um, you know, security, I don't think, was uh, as strong of a focus for enterprises as much as it was a few years, a few years later. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, I, it, there, was a, there were times when I first started there and, you know, and I, I, I talked to a support guy and he says, well, you know, uh, this customer is complaining because the, the data is backed up and they're trying to, is there a way that they can get a month's worth of data in faster into the SEM? And I'm like, well, why they, why this happen? And then the support guy says, well, because they had it turned off and they just wanted to turn it on before, before the auditor came. And I'm like, oh my gosh, really? And so, um, so I came from a space, it came from a time where security, we're trying to convince enterprises that security was important to then I got into a place, you know, say 2014, 2015, when the target breach happened, you know, security became, you know, something important enterprises, they're actually investing in it, you know, we're measuring the percent of IT that's going to security, which right. is great. And, and then it was a lot in terms of my role. It was a lot about understanding the customer and spending a lot of time, you know, talking to our customers and talking to our partners and understanding what those needs are, and then trying to triangulate those needs into the product. Mm-hmm. Going into a startup here, 
that base of people and constituents that I have to talk to are a lot less. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you really have to um, do a lot more. You have to leverage a a lot of different contacts that you have that could maybe be a bigger spokesman for certain areas like Mm -hmm. the partner community. You know, leveraging um, industry analysts, yeah. leveraging meetup groups, right, um, and things like that. So I'm having to find ways to increase the number of people I talk to to help understand what's really going on in the industry because my pulse and my sample is a lot less, right. So that's one of the big differences. The other probably big difference is um, I spend a lot of time in the weeds. Yeah, you know. At, at Logarithm, I, I didn't spend a lot of time really understanding a specific attack or really taking the time to understand a specific vulnerability, let alone writing it out and then issuing it to our, you know, issuing a notice to our customers. And that's something I do today. Yeah. Being, being in a smaller, smaller startup where we have to wear multiple hats. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. I, I've, uh, yeah, it seems to me when you're in a startup, you get a chance to innovate a lot more. Your investment profile is higher so you can move faster. But on the flip side, you don't have the name recognition and all of the context that you can reach out to quite so easily. Yeah, exactly. And so what you have to, what you have to rely on is your network and the yeah. relationships of people that you built. Yeah. And so that's a lot of what I, what I do today. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so what are your favorite products in security today? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, you know, this is, I don't necessarily have a favorite product, Mary, but I will tell you right now what I think, what right now is important to me and I think is going to change the industry. And that's what I'm excited about is the MITRE ATT&CK framework. Oh, yeah. yeah. Are you that's, familiar with that? Yeah, so it's kind of like the kill chain, except it's not linear and more comprehensive. Is yeah. That how you'd say? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, it's, it's the kill chain um, that's been redeveloped based upon a bunch of data that MITRE had and MITRE taking a bunch of data and then saying, how do we map this to a set of behaviors that then atomic different behaviors that then we can look for um, independently to see if there's an attack going on. Yeah. And, and they, and they found a way to do it. Right. So they have their kill chain states, which is effectively a set of tactics. Yep. You know, kill chain has seven, the, the MITRE ATT&CK framework, I think, has 11. I think it's 11. Yeah. And, then, and, then, um, and then it has a set of techniques, which are effectively TTPs or behaviors, mm-hmm. like things like um, brute force, things like the use of PowerShell. Right. Um, the things like the use of um, encryption or the use of a connection proxy to obscure where, where, where you're coming from. And so these are different types of TTPs or behaviors that then you that attacks in history have been put together that then form the entire attack or the attack lifecycle. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I like about it is that it's really grounded in a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. And it's grounded in detail that shows that talks about, you know, what each TTP is talks about how to detect it, mm-hmm. talks about how to mitigate it, talks about what type of telemetry, what type what type of ways can you use to gain telemetry into it, and then what attacks used it. And so, you know, that ground that uh, that grounding has kind of allowed, you know, enterprises now to say, well, let's see how many of these uh, techniques can we actually see, observe and detect in our enterprise in our enterprise security architecture. Right. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a nice way to measure 
products and how much coverage they give. Right? Yeah, exactly. So you can kind of take a product and say, how much coverage does it give? And what's probably even, what, what even excites me more is that there's actually vendors who are supporting it and adopting it, mm. right? Really, this is more of a product towards uh, traditional enterprise security and, and around, you know, attacks around hosts. And so the EDR community has, has, has embraced it. And so MITRE actually did an evaluation last fall of a number of different EDR vendors. And those, that, that result, those results are published. Yeah. So it's public. And so the vendor community is embracing it to some degree. It looks like the enterprises are are embracing it. And now we ha- we may have potentially common vocabulary to talk about, um, you know, enterprise protection. Right. So I think that in general, like I said, and that's what makes me excited about it. Because I'm like, finally, something's going to work. Yeah. And like we all can talk to each other and really understand what our security products do. Right. <laughs> yes, it's fu- it's funny you say that because often running product, you're you're told, hey, go go check out what your competitors are doing so that you can compare. And I tell you what, you go to these websites or you go to RSA, and I cannot figure out what anybody actually does because it just says machine learning, blockchain, uh, automation. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It becomes really, really hard to understand that. Yeah. Here we got this framework where these atomic units all have good definitions. Yeah. And kind of at ThreadX, we're utilizing, ironically, that similar approach mm-hmm. where we're looking for atomic behaviors. And if we see enough of them, we're going to dynamically block that stream. Yeah. So we're not kind of a, a normal rule-based type of WAF. We're looking for TTPs. And once we've seen enough TTPs and they've accumulated enough risk, you're going to get blocked. Right. And so... It's very similar in approach, and so that's probably what motivated me also to think you know, why I'm so excited about ThreadX as well. Right, right. Um, so how, how have you found so machine learning always a buzzword and always pressure to get value out of that? I have mixed feelings about machine learning. I've looked into it, and I really like the potential because we are now able to collect lots of data. Computation power is really high to process it, and yet... Um, how, how has it worked for you building it into your products? What have you found effective, not effective when it comes to machine learning? Because I know there's a, lot of, there's a lot of other kinds of math that work really well, but machine learning is the thing everyone likes to hear about right oh, now. Oh, absolutely. And I think machine learning has, has a place, right? I think yeah. there's a couple of different things. So first of all, we know that um, the business market uses analytics for trending. Yeah. Okay, so if we have, so anything that involves trending, you want to know, you know, for if I take web applications, okay, what what does normal traffic look like? Well, if assuming that you can figure out what normal traffic is, right. you could trend and say, yeah, this is probably what normal traffic is going to look like up until the app changes. So, in, so you can use trending, I think, in certain areas of, of security to be able to predict, well, this looks similar to this other thing. The other place I think that's more commonly used is anomaly detection. Yeah. This looks different. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. It's an anomaly, but as we all know, is it security relevant or not? And that's where other types of math, I think, come in. Correlative capabilities are, are incredibly important to bring in information about, well, not only is this an anomaly, but, you know, these type of TTPs were also observed. Yeah. All right. And so I think now we have a higher chance and higher degree of probability that this is probably, you know, bad behavior. Right. So I think it's important being correlative, corroborative, you know, trending, computational, whatever it calls, advanced algebra. Yeah. It all works. Yeah. The important thing 
is really to, you know, be able to put it all together and then really, and then with the result being something you're highly confident of. Yeah. And then second, something that a security analyst can actually um, investigate and understand. So it can't be a black box. Right. Well, I found it's, it's interesting you say that because I found, yeah, you'll play around with clustering, like nth degree clustering, and you can find out that something's like mathematically weird, but you have no idea why you just, you know, you can't, you can't tune the dials on clustering the way you can with like a KDE model. So a lot of the user behaviors tend toward that kernel density estimation, because at least you can tune those dials and you you could explain why it was weird. It's not easy to, but much easier because you've predefined all of the models underneath. But I, I, yeah, I completely agree. Telling someone that something is statistically weird is just not helpful right now in our industry. No, and I, I think I think um, security teams kind of discount it. They're yeah. like, that's great. It says an anomaly, but I don't know why. So I'm going to go over to the data. Yeah. And that's where we're going to say something less complex, but comprehensible is more important and is more valuable to those organizations today. Yeah, the, the best ones I've seen are really use case driven. So I'm, I'm thinking about a particular kind of attack and I'm thinking about the math that would best find that. And then I specifically dial it in and look for it versus the the black box approach. Yeah. And I think we're starting to see um, a realization in the market, especially with the the growth and kind of the excitement around the MITRE attack framework. I think people are starting to get more grounded into reality again and that, and and maybe we're off the hype cycle of of machine learning and and we use it in the right spots. Yeah. Yeah. Because it it does have a lot of potential um, for sure. So uh, I also wanted to ask you, so speaking of innovation and machine learning and the buzzwords, how do you balance what your, you know, what your customers want and what the business needs are? That's a big challenge with product management is, is trying to get that really in the right balance. Yeah, it's true. And, and you know, a big part of that comes from, um, I would say, an important thing that a lot of us take for granted, it's called listening. <laughs> you know, as the product manager and the product leader, we're not the ones who are really making the decision. Yeah. We're fostering the decision. And what's really important, and especially in security today, is to make sure you understand those different stakeholders. Some of those stakeholders are going to be internally support organization, your professional services organization, um, your engineering teams, and, and, then, and your sales teams, of course. And then there's and then there's those external ones, you know, your partners, and then your customers and your prospects. And I think what's important is to really listen, really seek to understand what are what are organizations really trying to do, what's their motivation, what's their pain point. Yeah. And make sure that we can communicate them in an unfiltered manner. Mm-hmm. All right, and get them on the table. And then I think when the business stakeholders come in and see that. I think you'll. I think it becomes fairly evident in terms of where we need to wait. And today we do need to wait more on the customer and the market because security is more about getting security to work well versus getting something new and cool. Yeah, and I think I think that fad's kind of passed us. Now. Yeah, I I definitely see the same thing. I see the shift toward customer success. So not just trying to sell a product, but actually getting the customer to use it and get value out of it and check in with them regularly. So I've seen that shift in product development, the move toward customer success. Exactly, and then more importantly is how do how does our market buy? Our bar, our market today largely buys by word of mouth. 
Yeah. So I think that actually motivates the right behavior for us vendors. Yeah. Right. Is that we need to have those, those, you know, flaming customer advocates because the security community is small and, and people all talk to each other. If we look at the Colorado security Slack channel, you know, (laughs) what do you think about X comes up once in a while? Totally. Yeah. So as a product insider, uh, a bunch of people listening are are not on the vendor side. They're in the customer side. How would you advise them when selecting products? Yeah, <laughs> that's, a good, that's another good question. So, you know, first of all is, you know, do do your intelligence in terms of talking to people. Mm-hmm. But remember, your environment always could be different. And the other thing is sometimes people don't want to bust relationships. And so you really don't know Every you may not be hearing everything you need to hear about that product. So do your testing. Yeah, I think that's important, especially for any product that is going to be more difficult for you to pull out yeah. if it doesn't work out. So I think you know, first of all, is is do that. Yeah. The the second of all um, thing I would do is is make sure the product's easy. You know, honestly, today we shouldn't be seeing hundred page documents. Right. Your like security a, team. A manual that's a PhD in that product. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, you know, I can see, you know, understanding some of the the vocabulary and, and that that a vendor utilizes and maybe a need to have some documentation around that. But user interfaces should be intuitive, right? That you should be able to discover things. It should be obvious. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, and um, then ask yourself, is this going to be something that is going to be frictionless for my organizations? Yeah. And, and maybe it won't be perfect. And if it isn't, test out the, test out the um, vendor and give them feedback. Yeah. And see if they're really listening. Yeah. Ask them to repeat, what did I just say? <laughs> right? Ask them to repeat what, the, what you know, what, what uh, you as an enterprise is, is important to you. And ask them, you know, to really provide you some level of commitment. I mean, you know, dates are hard to commit to, but, you know, I, I think salespeople and all of us know that if you're going to commit to something, that's 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 something that is important in relationships to honor. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully they'll do that. If they don't, I'd walk away. Yeah. And I guess a little secret is there's this thing called revenue recognition, where as a product leader, if we've promised... Uh, a feature to you by a date, we can't recognize the revenue of the sale until we give it to you. So, um, you know, put that word revenue recognition, just sort of file that away somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's actually a good point. That's something that you and I don't want to hear about. <laughs> yeah, you know, for sure. We go to great lengths to avoid. Yeah. And I think probably the other thing is make sure your product is, is really future proof in terms of, um, and supports the enterprise topology that you have planned for the next five years. And, you know, a lot of that is cloud. And so, you know, products that are cloud native are going to be, you know, probably they could be more um, appropriate for the environment than ones that are not. And so, you know, really think about um, where, you know, what type of product that is going to be important to you. And a lot of times it could be that cloud native one. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So let's, I'm going to do a time check. We got a couple minutes. I wanted to get, so we rarely get to talk to female chief product officers. So this is exciting. I wanted to get your tips on your leadership tips. So you lead big teams. Um, Any advice for those of us that are leading teams? Any words of advice to us? Oh, Mary, that's that's an interesting question. (laughs) Uh, Another one. You're you're hitting me up today. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, I think, you know, first of all is spend the time and do the hiring right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, you got to do the hiring right because if you, you've got to have people that kind of have that growth mindset, mm-hmm. right, who can learn and adapt. And then and probably the other thing is, you know, is to make sure that you've got really good relationships within the teams. Yeah. When people like each other, they tend to work well together. It's true. Yep. Right. So I think, you know, people don't often think about that. But when I hire somebody, the first thing I think about for the first month is relationship. They can say, okay, you know, I pretty much give them, a, you know, a little bit of latitude. But I know what my aim is, is make sure I really understand them and, and they trust me. Mm-hmm. And and I show trust of them. I hire them. I, you know, I'm going to assume I hired a great person. Yeah. So that's a that's a big part of it. And and after that, um, I think another big big part of what we need to be doing is trust. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of things aren't going to be happening the way we had thought they should happen. But in the end, things will probably work out. Yeah. So if you've done the right, if you've done the right hiring and and um, there's no reason not to trust right away. Yeah. Right? I like that. Right? And so that's kind of a big part of um, what I believe in from a leadership perspective. And, and if anything, listen more. Yeah. I like that too. So there you go. Cool. And lastly, your thoughts on diversity and how, how you include that in your teams. You know, it's a topic that um, honestly is not one. It's not one of my favorite ones, right? Mm-hmm. Being someone who's a woman in leadership, you know, you get asked this question and you're like, I don't get it why I'm different. Yeah. And over the years, I've started to understand something and maybe it's a blind spot for me. And that is um, one of the challenges I think we have in creating diverse environments is the fact that we like to hire people like us. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if talking about relationships and getting along, yeah, you tend to pick somebody that's going to get along. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. I can go out and have a beer with this person, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the way we really need to be thinking about hiring is what are the skills that we have on the team and what are the skills that we need? Mm -hmm. And usually those skills are the ones or soft skills or technical skills that are gapping. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and and recognize that and then put that part of your hiring process. And then second, really encourage your, your, your recruitment process or hiring process to recruit diverse candidates. Right. In the end, hire the best person. Right. But at least get diverse candidates in there so you can see how those gaps and the needs that you have to, to fill the team um, could be met by the various different types of candidates out there. Right. So there's my thought. I love it. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure to be with you on the Colorado Equal Security podcast. Any last thoughts before I close out? No, not, nothing for me other than um, I'm waiting for spring and excited to play some golf. And if you're a golfer. You know, I'm not a golfer, but I noticed you ski or you snowboard, right? Yeah, I do. So I'm a big skier. So we could do that. Together. Oh, so, there you go. All right. Well, I'll golfing, go. I'd have to like drive the cart for you. That's Okay. All right. Well, I'll go anywhere you can ski unless there's just a lot of trees. I'm going to be terrified. So you'll have to, um, I'll do it, but just know in the end, (laughs) I'm going to be a little scared all along the way. No problem. I, um, I'll take you right up to the double box. There you go. All right. You're on. All right. Thanks everybody. Talk to you later. 
Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.